I am here with Light, who is a crypto artist and um, also has been writing a ton on some really interesting things happening in Web3. Light, I'm so excited to have you on the pod. Thank you for having me. Um, I can't wait to dive into hypercultures and some of the thinking that you've been doing. But before we do that, um, I know you are a non, so give the amount of detail that you feel comfortable with. But can you give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? I would say uh, my journey began late 2020, uh, kind of following the coattails of Jack Butcher. Uh, he had a course that was very transformational for me called Build One, Sell Twice. And, you know, the short summary of that is essentially, you know, build digital assets that can be replicated at low cost and, you know, build essentially a library of assets that can work for you as you ascend in whatever industry is interesting to you. And so he was poking around about NFTs. And so I just followed and said, okay, what are NFTs? And I would say the fuse got lit for me personally uh, with the Alien Boy project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but I remember just minting them and then Bored Apes were minting around then. And there was this, you know, mini mania before the major mania. And it was just kind of this moment of, oh, okay, uh, there's something here. And to kind of tie it in more cohesively, my background has been very much uh, work, odd jobs, real estate, service industry, hospitality, apprenticeship, all so that I could work on my creative interests on the side. And so there was kind of this melding point, you know, nine, 10 years in of, okay, I think this is the place that I have legitimate chance of turning my creative hobby into a creative career. So since late 2020, I've just been, honestly, there's not much direction in it. I know right now, you know, I've talked to a couple people and it seems like maybe I'm giving off the impression that I know what I'm doing, but I, I really don't. That would kind of be a lie if I said I did. So I'm kind of just following whatever is curious and interesting at the moment. And currently that has led us, you know, to this conversation where I would say the main thing at the front of my mind is culture, um, crypto adoption. And the new form of a creative that can exist on chain where, you know, rather than just, hey, I do this thing as a hobby, it is, hey, I do this thing because I love it. And there's a place for it to actually capture value and connect value. And since I'm early, I'm very interested in how do we make that more understandable for the creatives to come and how do we, you know, improve on some of the friction points that we currently deal with? Yeah, that's really good context. And I think um, particularly in your thinking around culture, you had this series um, about hyperculture. And what was most interesting to me, and, and we'll dive into like what that means and what the context for that idea was, but I think there's so much happening in the Web3 space around um, like sort of decentralized creation and really opening up not only new models for how creativity can be expressed and pursued, but also like feels like new mechanisms for this like collective co-creation. And um, it felt like hyperculture was this really great label for something that I think we hadn't really um, been able to label and identify before. And so, um, that got me down the rabbit hole of, of your series. So maybe you can give like some high level context on, um, the thinking behind this hyperculture series, just like a little bit of foundation setting. Um, and then we can dive into what hypercultures actually are and, and how they manifest. Sure. Uh, let me think for a second. I would say the relevant context for hypercultures is kind of a fork of uh, Zora's co-founder, Jacob. He wrote an essay on hyperstructures that's on his jacob.energy site. And that article kind of summates to, you know, the whole ethos of trustless and, you know, kind of undeniable aspects of crypto, uh, what we call a mechanisms as opposed to like off-chain mechanisms. And in there, 
I really was inspired by the way he labeled kind of uh, their timelessness. Maybe that's the best way to say this. And that made me start thinking, you know, some of the stuff I had just mentioned previously about the creative side of things, you know, one of the big bottlenecks, in my opinion, to creativity is it's kind of just like shooting into the void, right? You create something, uh, maybe it gets a pop, maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, it's already in the void. If it if it did, then it'll soon be in the void. And then there's like this unwritten threshold point where a creator is now in the collective consciousness and that, you know, that's just kind of culture, but, um, there is a time limit on creativity. Maybe this is the best way for me to phrase this. There's a time limit on creativity and there's a timelessness to hyperstructures. So there was a very, I was very inspired reading that essay and it made me think, okay, maybe there is a timelessness quality to this technology that we can pair with creativity and we don't necessarily restrict the chaotic flow of a creative mind, but we actually enhance it. And so that's the starting context of hypercultures. And then the broad overview on top of that is, you know, if you look at Nounsdow, Opepin, Zora, I, these are three, what I've deemed hypercultures in, I think, essay two of the series, and they all look different but they all have underlying patterns that mimic each other. And the main overarching thing, I guess I'd want anyone who was trying to figure out what hyperculture meant uh, to take away from this is, is it's just global coordination on a more pure sense of what the internet was meant to be. So there was a ebook I shared on my Twitter uh, by Vince Cerf, and it, I think it was 1999, and he wrote like a four-page essay for a speech, and it's titled "The Internet Is for Everyone." And it was just like a quick manifesto of like the internet is for everyone, but the internet is for everyone, but. And he was just kind of labeling out the future bottlenecks that'll come just due to natural human messiness. And a hyperculture is, I guess, my way of thinking about remedies to that. You know, how do we, how do we not try to tackle the insurmountable goal of changing human nature and instead guide it? And so I would say the overarching idea in that long-winded rant is to say a hyperculture is kind of guardrails for letting natural human instincts coalesce on top of things that other people are interested in as well. Yeah. And I really liked the examples that you used. I think like nouns is a great one because a lot of people are familiar with it. And I think it's a very good example of this model where like in my head and part of the reason that this resonates is it feels like a lot of creative work up until the nouns type of model and this sort of birthing of or I guess container around what you're calling hypercultures was limited to the creative capacity of one person or of like a small team. And it feels like part of what hypercultures introduces to your idea around timelessness is this sort of like um, forever container that anyone can plug into or pull out of um, where there's like this sort of collective creation. Do you think that's a fair way of characterizing how you're thinking about this? I think that was perfect, honestly. Much, much simpler than kind of what I was going with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, how do we connect, right? You know, like we had this weird progression where like all connection was off chain and offline even. Then uh, message boards and forums and chat rooms came up and there was this like massive push to connection, right? You would hop on chat roulette or what you would just go, Hey, let me connect with anybody. And then it grew a little bit more and then we've kind of gotten siloed. And so now the next thing is just how you said, it's like, how do we connect again with the new technology? Yeah. And, and you talk a little bit in these pieces about what about, you don't explicitly say this, I don't think, but I, I think you're getting at it in some of them, which is basically like, what about Web3 uniquely enables these things? Um, it feels like hyperstructures are this like uniquely Web3 
um, phenomenon. And, and of course, that powers some of this. But I'm curious when you think about why we haven't been able to effectively create hypercultures at scale and in the abundance that we can on the internet, like why hasn't that been possible until Web3? Mm, that's a great question. Um, a couple of things come to mind. I'd say first, we genuinely don't have enough population yet. You know, I've been obsessed with the daily active user metric on Ethereum recently, and it's like 250,000 people. And, you know, and I myself have like four wallets. So if you average out that everybody maybe has like one to two wallets, it could be even like 150,000. So I think, you know, I think at the surface level, we don't have enough people yet. And then ironically enough, I just wrote something for a series I'm working on called the obvious series, which is kind of like the, you know, such and such for dummies, but crypto version and a little less disrespectful. Um, and in that, I kind of came away with, you know, there, there's also a money conversation here, right? People get a little squirmy when, when money gets brought up, I understand, but you know, it would kind of be like ignoring the elephant in the room. Like there is, you know, the Amazons and Googles and all that got very wealthy from being in the dot-com, you know, early days. So there's a lot of money to be made here for the people that play it right and stick around. And I think, you know, even though we may not discuss that openly, I do think there's a fair amount of let me wait for my perfect moment going on with a lot of people. And, you know, I actually got this idea from Logan Paul, ironically enough, and I know he's embroiled in his own scandals here in the space, but he mentioned this thing of pioneers and buccaneers and how the buccaneer is the person who actually reaps all the rewards. Like the pioneer finds the land, they die of diseases that they weren't prepared for, they have to fight, you know, yada, yada. They get written in history, but the buccaneer is the one who comes after and builds the town and has the trade routes and all these things. And I think, you know, I think the two big roadblocks are we don't have enough people and we have this weird game going on where people are kind of like, uh, can you build it first? And then can I enjoy the rewards that are built on top of it? And, you know, that's not totally bad that, you know, that creates space for self-starters and curious minds, but I do definitely think it is quite a big, you know, factor at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. Even, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, particularly when it comes to experimenting with more creative work in Web3 and what it looks like for people to adopt Web3 um, who are not sort of like natively in the space. The other weird dynamic that comes to mind here, particularly around um, hypercultures and this idea of like mimetic primitives almost, um, something that you point out in one of the pieces is this idea of like mimetic icons and how cultural these like hypercultures are essentially like built around mimetic icons. And I think there's also a weird dynamic going on where it's like everyone seems to want to create the core mimetic icon and then kind of expects other people to build on top of it, which to me is a similar dynamic to, you know, everyone wants to be the L1 or the L2, um, but no one wants to build the actual consumer applications on top of it that people are going to use. And so I'm curious, like on the flip side, when we think about what it looks like to pioneer a mimetic icon, um, I'm curious how you think about that in in the context of hyper, hyper I almost call it hyperstructures, but hypercultures. <laughs> no worries. What an amazing question. Um, I do not have a definitive answer on this one. It is something that I'm quite obsessed with. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a couple ideas here. Let me try to make them more cohesive. Okay. Um, so if we take a step back for a second and kind of just look at culture, right? The way I've kind of been phrasing it in these essays is data, right? And um, mimetic icons, really playing with the term meme 
and you know came up with this term memeware that is kind of software but for the mind right so we kind of tie all that stuff together with data and you know culture is just people being people together right like kind of what we're doing right now is culture i mean it's only for you and i and whoever enjoys the episode but it is a form of culture and so when i really started kind of digging into that line of thinking excuse me i came away with we're really just communicating and to not get too abstract woo woo but i f- i feel like it contextualizes it the best we're really just taking unformed emotional sensory data that is originating inside of us and then trying to put it into words symbols art whatever we can put it into and then show it to someone else and then have them decipher it to go like oh, okay i understand what what has arisen inside of you that you're trying to share with me and so you know if we work from that assumption a mimetic icon insofar as i've figured it out this far is kind of a vertex point in the cultural consciousness of you know whoever i guess resonates with that thing and it, it should be simple enough that it should be it should be simple enough that when you see it you recognize it instinctually but it should have enough complexity and layers to it that it opens up the conversation for whatever you want to add to it so in the essay the three i've picked so far has been the zor by zora the noggles by nouns and the silhouette of opepin and if you look at those three noggles are glasses the zorb is a ball and the opepin silhouette is the prototypical silhouette of avatars from the earliest internet day and those three things are instinctually recognizable but there is so much you can do there's so much you can add there's so many different ways to understand it and so the mimetic icon is almost like a modern day hieroglyph i would say yeah i think that's a fascinating way to frame it and it also kind of makes me wonder like maybe this is just my lack of experience in very specific creative circles but it feels like the current creative process tends to lean yes on remixing but less explicitly like it seems like this kind of introduces a new era of um remixing to the point where like the entire point of nouns is basically to remix the nouns meme and proliferate it um And so I think there's something really interesting about these mimetic icons being seen as foundations rather than like final pieces of creative output fit for consumption. Um, And that kind of makes me wonder like how it, how it fits in the creative process and how it shapes the creative process. Um, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, first off, I agree. I think foundation is the right way to put it. I might actually steal that for some future essays. Um, yeah, I would, you know, currently from my vantage point, because I think everyone creates a little bit differently, they are very much an art piece in and of themselves, right? So I have, the closest I've gotten is like a block, like a cube, and then it having, you know, endless color gradients that it can take and then use it as an infographic or use it as an art piece itself or you know use it as an explanation explanation tool etc um so i would say you know this is another one i don't really have a definitive for you but when i think about noggles right and i and i look through 4156 twitter history when i was writing that essay you know, what I really came away with was that he's talking about the vision of crypto at scale. And it seems more than coincidence that the noggle 
are glasses. Like that the the foundation for his underlying creative instinct is the thing that helps you see better. And I felt that same way with Opep and I felt that same way with Zora. So, you know, I would say as in shaping creative interest, I very much feel like it is intricately connected to whatever the base creative instinct is of whoever creates it. And, you know, that kind of opens up a discussion where it's like, who's really creating it, right? Because Noggles, like you said, is an experiment in proliferating itself. So who is actually creating the mimetic icon? Um, so it, it almost feels, sorry, it's somewhat of a tangent, but I'm kind of working it out in real time. It. Hmm. Also, we love tangents on this podcast. Okay, perfect. You're, you're so good. Um, what am I? What am I trying to say? It is. I really like the term vertex, right? I think of like an endless uh, graph, like a black background with a white grid, and it can go in any direction. You know, it's four D. And I really think of this term of vertex, like where's the locus point that this thing builds and, you know, how does it build and morph? Is it, you know, like an orb or is it like a rectangle or is it linear? And I really feel like the creative process of a mimetic icon is who can find the locus point on that grid for the thing that all these people are kind of hovering around, but don't have anywhere to anchor themselves to. And then the Initial creative process is for that person who can find that locus point to design it and create it and publish it. And then from there, it's kind of not even theirs anymore. Now it's just, okay, here's the vertex. Anyone who's kind of floating around in this area on the grid that resonates and wants to you know, expand it, come expand it. And at that point, the creative process is just absolutely chaotic. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting because it actually reminds me, I don't know if you've read Toby Shoren's piece on life after lifestyle, but I think a lot of his argument around um, the evolution of like brands and culture is essentially that like the best brands effectively become that point um, where people gather around for signaling and for identity and all of these things. But, um, but it's really like an actualization of a culture that already exists. And it feels like what you're getting at with mimetic icons is very similar, which is basically just like, how can you create something somewhat tangible around this like very intangible space? Um, which is interesting because I had not really considered that the culture predates the mimetic icon. Like I kind of have thought about these things up until now as the mimetic icon creating a container for the culture to then like build and develop. And um, it seems like your mental model, which I think is actually a much more accurate one potentially, is that the culture exists and the mimetic icon just gives you something to point to and create around that is more tangible than this like weird, you know, vibe space that has no clear uh, container. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, it's like, we're all kind of coming back to that, that idea of the data that is within you that is not articulated yet. It's like, we all have lived our own lives. We've all done our own things, seen our own things, messed up, all these things. We already have all this data inside of us. And another kind of mental image I play with is this thing of a spectrum. And it's kind of the same thing as the grid, but now we're looking at it as if it's on a wall. And it's like infinitely stretches out to the left, it infinitely stretches out to the right, and it has like a pretty vast height, right? And I think of each kind of set of squares as getting colored in by people's various data. And I've always had conversations with, with people I talk with this about of, if everybody authentically pursued the natural interests inside of them, this spectrum would fill in completely. It would be filled with color all the way. And so to your point about culture preceding the icon, 
I very much have this thing of like, uh, all those colors are already overlapping. Like there's interests that we have in common and then different. And the mimetic icon's job is kind of just to anchor that point so that the people who have the overlap can come and actually get to work building things around it. Um, Cause there's a whole other conversation there about like, you kind of brought it up about brands already where it's like, you know, there's a commercial aspect to brands and I don't think that has to be wrong. In fact, I think part of the hyperculture idea is there's a way to upgrade it so that it's more authentic and resonates with the people it should and provides equity and opportunity to people that usually would be marginalized out of it in the off-chain world. Yeah, I think um, when I think about what it means to like authentically pursue what's interesting to you and when I also put that in the context of some of the pieces that you make in the piece in in this series on hypercultures about like sustainability of of being able to actually um, create work and how in the past artists have kind of been forced to either like decide that making money doesn't matter or you need to push commercialization of your work. Um, and And I think there's an interesting dynamic here where like the reason that comes up for me in the authenticity s- spectrum is just like, I think sometimes um, incentives muddy the our understanding of our own reasoning for doing something and motivation and authenticity around why we engage in the act of creation. And so I'm curious when you think about like those pieces, um, what is your general viewpoint on like how the very explicit incentives of Web3 shape how people engage with these mimetic icons and maybe even how people engage with like creation on the internet in general? Wow. What a phenomenal question. Uh, Small, small questions. No, I mean, that is amazing. Um, So... I would say my ideal answer to this question is that, you know, to to coalesce around creative instincts that someone else made, but you resonate with, I do very much feel like there needs to be some economic incentive for some, right? And not everybody is financially motivated, but a fair amount of people are. Um, which is, you know, whichever way you go is whichever way you go. But, you know, uh, OX Gami, who is a noun, ended up writing a fork of my fork, which he called Hyper Commons. And his, you know, take on it is more from the public good standpoint. And I think, I think the incentive structure here requires at least three uh, levels, excuse me. And I think the first level is the hyperstructure that Jacob brought up, which is quite financially motivated. Um, But it's an upgrade on off-chain structures in that, you know, it's permissionless, it's decentralized, you know, all those ethos that we have come to understand. And then I think the second layer is the hyperculture, which is what I've been working on, which is, you know, where you signal, where you self-identify, where you uh, network, right? Some of the things you just mentioned. And then I think the hyper commons level is, you know, where you do good, where you're gracious, where you help, where, where you network again. And I think the, those three layers, instead of actually being stacked on top of each other, I think of them almost as like sitting on their side and allowing people to enter from whichever direction is naturally the way they think right? It doesn't make sense to have someone who's financially motivated become a charitable person. It doesn't make sense for someone who's uh, charity motivated to become a financial person. Maybe they do in time through activity, but I've definitely come more to like a meet people where they are uh, mindset. And I think a hyperculture actually kind of sits in between, you know, like nouns. If you think about nouns for a second, nouns doesn't jump the way it does without 4156 and Gremlin, excuse me. And 4156 even had that whole fiasco where he was selling his punk for millions, right? So there was a unspoken understanding of like 
not only is this social character that I like, want to network with, want to steal some of the identity for my own signaling, and I don't mean that pejoratively, not only was there that, there was, oh, and I also understand that this is going to be financially backed. And that has created room for people to do charity in Africa and Asia, wearing noggles, to do NARSDAO and so on and so forth. So I think ideal, my ideal answer is let's create three different layers, you know, common good, cultural good, company good, or commerce good, and then allow people to join wherever they want. And then maybe they'll blend in and bleed into other things and, and we see where it goes from there. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting framing because it feels like what it does is it says none of these things are, uh, it's not all or nothing in the sense that you actually can have this like group of people working towards something with a blend of different motivations um, for engaging. And, and so I really like that framework. And it also kind of makes me wonder like, do the it feels like every community probably has a certain amount that they index on each of those. So, you know, you could say that a lot of the regen movement, for example, and even if we want to get more specific, let's talk like Gitcoin, um, you know, I think tends to be, or at least in theory is less commerce motivated and is a little bit more um, cultural and um, like commons motivated. And so it kind of makes me wonder how much these different, how much an individual project's indexing on each of these individual like motivations shapes not just the meme itself, but also like how it's then proliferated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I definitely think it is most impactful in the beginning, right? I think... Um, so a little bit of a tangent, but it brings context into what we're discussing. So in 2021, you know, during the mania, I launched one of the projects that I'm working on long-term called Abshaverse. And, and the short of it is it's like an internet museum and I want to do a thousand one-of-one pieces and, you know, eventually retrofit the museum ideal. But that's all context to say it got caught by the mania and there was a moment where I had sold, you know, 80 pieces in the span of like six days. And I had, you know, 40 ETH trading volume and all these kind of mania characteristics that I had never experienced before as a creator. And I made a very conscious decision in that moment after kind of interacting with people in the discord that I was going to cool off and let all that hype die down. And the reason for it is kind of what we're talking about now where, you know, there, there, there's the idea of karma, right? But to kind of take some of the woo, -woo out of it, it's almost like I just think you kind of get what you give, right? And I don't even mean like later. I mean, almost like right now, right? If I wake up and I'm in a bad mood, the first person I interact with, if I'm in a bad mood toward them, is probably going to kind of be in a bad mood back to me. And I feel very much at scale on crypto networks, what you put out, you get back in return, and you're kind of watching this happen with a lot of the P PFP projects that launched in 2021. I mean, you know, no shot at them. They went the route they went. But a lot of the signaling at onset was, let's all get filthy rich off minimal work. And that attracted a lot of people that wanted to get filthy rich off of minimal work. And those kind of people typically will eat you alive if you don't provide the thing that they gambled on. So I definitely think at the beginning, it is the most important to kind of say, where are we intent-wise? Who do we want to attract? And then I think, you know, say you're at like 30% more, whatever that is relative to the person. I think that's when you can kind of go, okay, let's introduce this second intent. And then you keep going, okay, let's introduce this third intent. I do think long-term, it's kind of limitless. Like if, like Mr. Beast is another person I like to examine a lot. And, you know, it started with just YouTube videos and now he has chocolate bars that outsell Hershey's, 
right? They're not connected at all whatsoever, but they fit under his, let's call it hyperculture for now. So I do think in the beginning, it needs to be kind of like, where do we want to stand and who do we want to attract? And then as you attract more and more of those people, you're going to get a wider and wider spread of the things that are not overlapping. And within that cohort, you can probably start building things that are divergent from the initial intent. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and it also kind of makes me wonder, like you brought up Mr. Beast and and Logan Paul and all of these people who I think, you know, yes, for as much as they're like sometimes hated on the internet and sometimes have some weird relationships with Web3, um, they are very successful creators and people who have found ways to make, you know, internet businesses work and scale. Um, but the one thing that that comes to mind for me on on them as like examples is this idea of scale and what that looks like. I think sometimes I I am very like, oh, you know, web three creators don't need to scale. And like the entire point is localizing the internet and making it so that it's possible for people to create and have small very small audiences and fan bases that they can sort of co-create with. And then the other side of me is like, no, actually these things need to, to be able to grow and expand. And that's the entire point. And I don't think it's an either or situation, but I am curious when you think about some of these things and, and what it looks like to um, have these types of hypercultures like expand and grow and take on new values and intents. Um, the, the natural question that comes to mind is basically just what does scaling look like? And what is the the principle that should be applied here around scale? Hmm. You know, I have to say, and it's not at all in a patronizing way. It's just I'm genuinely having a good time. These are phenomenal questions. So thank you. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. I think to your point, it's not really an either or, right? I do think I kind of go back to my spectrum image where I go we need creators that scale to Mr. B size and we need creators that, you know, make alternative R and B sample music that have 10 K followers that are rabid. Right. I, I think, I think where I come away on the hyperculture, if I were to get a little bit, a little bit more vulnerable and reveal some of my deeper intent, um, I was raised, you know, in a family that did not have money and then they grinded into money. Now they were obviously separated, but they both together kind of ascended the socioeconomic ladder as I aged. And so I've had a very interesting outsider perspective on kind of poverty-esque and then people who have lots of money and like fly on G4s and all these things. And I think you know, I would never brushstroke that, you know, a whole swath of people are bad or fake or all these things. But I will say the way that creative entities are handled off chain for the majority, I do have to preface that for the majority, it's not always like that, is quite uh, irritating to me. You know, if we come back to this idea of what is data and what are we saying and the culture precedes the icon, you know, creativity provides something uh, special and not even in like a precious sense. I mean, it provides actual commercial backing and foundation. And we're in this weird situation where somehow creatives have gotten tricked into, you know, being a starving artist is the it thing and making money is bad and all. And, you know, and there's a whole different there's all kinds of perspectives to attack that from. So I'll kind of just leave that there. But I, to bring it back to the scaling question, I do go, I know suits. If creatives don't scale, the suits will scale. And if the suits scale, how does crypto look any different than what off-chain looks like? So I do kind of have this opinion of we need large-scale creatives, we need mid-scale creatives, we need low-scale creatives. And you know, uh, I'm of the opinion that we need to kind of revolutionize the consumer model as well, right? I think 
creatives at, let's say, significant scale. So it doesn't have to be like Mr. B size, but at significant scale where, you know, people interact with them and enjoy their content and add to it. And there's kind of a, a culture there. I do think that is a positive sum domino effect for how consumers view their own consumption and how we communicate through consumerism and then the ripple effect of that on the broader society. Hmm. I'm curious how you see that shifting. I think nouns is a great, great spot to start. You know, I kind of, I had a tweet like a couple of years ago where I said in an ideal world, uh, on-chain artists would scale to represent, you know, various art movements and genres that hold moral values or mimetic values, whatever word you want to use, and that their creation and existence would foster sub-communities of cultural behavior. So I look at nouns and I go, that was a crypto art project that Grumplin des you know, designed all these little characters and it has fostered a sub-community where people are literally doing charity donating hundreds of thousands of dollars, picking up trash and proliferating the moral value that's inside the meme to the rest of the world. And to tie it back into my spectrum idea, I kind of go, I don't have an answer for all the world's problems, right? But I do have a hunch that everyone collectively has the answers for all the world's problems. Mm. Yeah, that becomes interesting in a way as well because the consumption experience changes, right? Like engaging in the nouns community, um, to your point around what it looks like to to shift the consumer experience, um, does become a much more active and participatory role in, in co-creating and you know, playing within a hyperculture, which I think is a really interesting model moving forward, particularly considering how much it feels like activity on the internet in general feels like very heavily consumption based, but also maybe like in real life, like, you know, we, not to get into this whole rabbit hole, but like, you know, we know that religious institutions are, are, much less popular, at least in places like the United States. Like we know that there are all these ways that people are much less active in communities and in playing an active and participatory role. Um, and so this idea that like actually participating in these hypercultures might be the consumer experience that we need. And even calling it a consumer experience is kind of funny because it's totally like the, the commercialization of just like engaging in a community of people. Um, but I'm curious how that resonates in, in the context of this conversation. Heavily. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, it kind of goes back to something I said at the beginning of, you know, it would be nice if we could rewire human nature to get rid of some of the uglier parts, you know, air quotes around uglier. Um, but it just doesn't seem that likely, right? And to your point about some of the tried and true traditional institutions that have fallen by the wayside, ironically enough, kind of in lockstep with how commercialism has now been packaged for us, it doesn't seem a coincidence. So rather than saying, hey, we need to go back into a past that no longer exists, I kind of go, is there a way to rechannel the human instinct, right? It's like, I like to consume. I like to buy things. I like new toys. I love technology. Um, I like paying plane tickets to travel and all the, I don't want to give those things up, but there can be, there, it can look different though. I think one of my favorite examples of this is I was down a weird rabbit hole on airplanes and I figured out that at some point the commercial airspace, which is just absolutely comical that we're saying commercial airspace, but the commercial airspace fell under a government contract, I believe. I, I, I've forgotten all the little details, but the gist of it is it went from an open and competitive market where airliners had to fight for customer adoption in the airspace. And that was when you had 
you know, carts coming with drinks and food and good music. And, and you had that like cinematic airline experience to now, you know, here are your peanuts. Don't make too much noise and let's cram everybody together because the airspace became private and there's no longer any competition. And so I think one of the things tied into the resonance of what you just said is, you know, the culture on chain by the people for the people probably has a more constructive and community oriented feel than off chain privatized. We own everything. So you'll do what we say because there are no other options. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. When, when you shape, when you change the incentives of the underlying structure or as um, some people call it, you know, like the the platform physics. Um, it totally changes the culture and the outcomes around it. And and I guess the other thing to call out there, tying it back to this idea of why Web three. Um, I think there is no guarantee that your creative energy and effort will be acknowledged or recorded no matter what in the web two space, because you don't have, you know, there is no shared ledger of this. And so I think the other piece that just continues to push on this, like what web three introduces is just that if you want to change the the underlying incentives and the mechanics of these things, you also need to have this certainty that those mechanics are going to be enforced. Um, and so I think that is a really good call out. And also to me, exemplifies the why web three aspect here. Totally. Uh, and just another anecdote, cause it's recent for mine. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and found out that Nikola Tesla came up with one of his most famous inventions off of reading a poem from like 50 years before him. And, you know, kind of to what you said way earlier in the conversation about derivatives and remixing, you know, and tying that into kind of why I say creativity provides something. It's like we have electrical technology in part because someone wrote a poem and Tesla just happened to read it. But to your point, it's not guaranteed that it would have uh, even been around off chain. And so now I think what is very interesting to me on more just the playful chaotic side of things is whatever is brewing in your mind put it on chain. Who knows when the next Tesla may read a random line you wrote or a random piece you made, and it might inspire something for all of humankind. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good model. And also um, reminds me of some of the work that companies like MetaLabel are doing in the space where you have drops and and really this push around not just putting media on chain, but also contextualizing it, which I know is probably a whole other rabbit hole that I'm not sure we have time to go down. But you you also did some really interesting thinking on context and and what that means. Um, maybe before we wrap, you can you can give the the TLDR on the role of context in hypercultures. Sure. Um, I think this is a nice way to kind of bow tie some of the more tangential musings I was saying on data within us, right? I, I you know, it, it's easy for some people to kind of think I'm taking a, you know, spiritual or mysticism route to it. But I, you know, while I do have my own interest in that, it's actually more, I guess, scientifically approached in that what is a word? Like when I say something to you, what it, what is happening, right? Like, half the time I don't even know what's coming out of my mouth as it's coming out of my mouth. So what is going on? And that really, I've come to use the term data for that because I think it is kind of easily understood of like what that's pointing toward. And context for me is making it as legible or digestible as possible for the intended party. Hmm. Yeah. So when something is, I'll, I'll extrapolate that out also. When a an output is committed on chain, for example, 
Um, there is context around that, which helps the consumer of that output understand its intent or its meaning, or maybe even just um, what it is itself. Yes, exactly. And I think it actually ties in perfectly with your accountability and on-chain world essay you wrote, where it's like, there, there's this weird, uh, it, it might not even be purposeful, but it's like an op obfuscation of data where it's like, what does this data even mean? Like, okay, it's here, it's public, but I, I don't have, you know, I'm not a developer. I don't have an understanding of what this is even saying to me and how tied in with the human nature aspect, someone who does will take advantage of that. Not everybody, but there will be players in there who will go, let's make an FTX, let's make an Almeida, let's get to work because no one knows what this is saying. And I think, you know, just like an on-chain world, that's an off-chain world, that's human to human, that's creativity, culture, like there's this, it's very hard to understand each other, right? Like a lot of my arguments with people in my life have just been misunderstanding based. You know, sometimes they're, you know, morals or whatever, but a lot of times it's just not understanding each other properly. And so I've come to very much value clear and understandable communication. And I think context is a very pretty word to make that less emotionally triggering, right? Because saying like, oh, you're not a good communicator for some people is triggering. So I think more so just, can you provide me more context or, hey, within this context or, hey, let's contextualize this. I think it does a really good job of saying like, let's just try to understand more. Yeah. The delta between understanding the truth of what someone means or intends or what, you know, is actually happening and perception is a very messy territory. And I think like to your point around human nature, not understanding what someone actually meant is, is messy, but also, yes, like the, the point about FTX, really that was an arbitrage opportunity taken advantage of, which was effectively, how can we um, take the the information asymmetry between what people think is happening and what's actually happening and how can we exploit that to make more money, which ended up going very awry. Um, and so, yeah, I think so much of what's actually happening in Web3 is just making context more accessible and seeing what happens. Even even the nouns, the idea of nouns is basically shared context for creation, mm -hmm. um, which I think is why I loved you putting a label on that like movement. I think up until this point, calling nouns like a DAO doesn't, I mean, and not to say that it is not a DAO, but it, it doesn't actually capture the nature of what's happening. And so I think hyperculture and starting to use this term more feels to me like a really good way to start understanding and labeling the magic that is actually going on, which is shared context that enables shared creation. That is wonderful. That is wonderful to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was such a lovely conversation. Um, where can people learn more about you, read all of the awesome stuff you've been putting out, all of the things? Uh, my Twitter is OXLight, no I, just O-G-H-T, uh, mirrorlight.eth. And if you want to go to my website to see all the stuff I'm working on, it's contextualizing.art. Beautiful. Light, thank you so much for coming on the pod. This was such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great.